These are remarkable stories. I had to take my best shotgun and saw the barrels of it. It hurt me greatly, but... <laughs> I was the first one down, and the Germans were running out of the building, just below the helipad where I came off the rope. So I ran to the edge, and I jumped across this water tank, which I suppose was four foot maybe wide, uh, and then went down the 10 or 12 foot, and landed on the deck with a crash, and uh, butt of the shotgun hit the ground, and boom... And they all stuck their hands up in the air. <laughs> all's well that ends well, as I say. My name is Prince Michael of Sealand, of the independent state of Sealand. Okay, everybody, brace yourselves, because this might just be the strangest story you've ever heard. This is the tale of a British family that decided to create a nation out of absolutely nothing. You heard that correctly, they created their own country, complete with stamps, passports, a government, a soccer team, and a ruling monarch. In today's episode, Mike McDowell has an audience with Prince Michael of Sealand. earliest memory of Sealand was Christmas Eve, 1966, and we, we picked up the, the, the staff from the radio station, which was on the Knock John Fortress, uh, I suppose about 15, 20 miles away from, from what was then known as Ruff's Towers. Uh, the government had brought in the Marine Offences Act, and they'd, my father had a radio station. That, 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 back in the 60s, there was no pop music for the kids. And certain entrepreneurs, my father being one of them, put transmitters offshore on ships and on some of the old wartime ports. But so the government brought in the Marine Offences Act because no government's like anything they, they can't control. And they're concerned that the pirates might go political. They also branded them pirates. They thought it would be insulting uh, to brand these station pirates. Of course, it was the best sort of branding you'd ever do because um, the public do like a pirate now and again. So anyway, they, they brought in the Marine Offences Act, which made it illegal to transmit, to uh, to supply the radio stations with food, fuel, advertising, or to work for them, or to supply them with a boat or anything. So they, they eventually they closed my dad down. Uh, so he looked for a better jurisdiction. And Christmas Eve, 1966, it was a flat, calm night, absolutely like glass. Remember, it freezing cold. And we got to the, the Ruffs Towers, and hanging down from the landing stage, was this thin piece of rope, and one of the fellows with us could climb like a monkey. And he climbed up, and on the end of this piece of rope was a was a rope ladder. And he lowered that down, and myself included, we climbed up there. There were two men on there, um, caretakers for, for Radio Caroline, who'd, I believe, had some kind of a plan of using the fort um, to supply the ship. In other words, being able to land a helicopter on the fort and keep fuel and, and, uh, and food and other stores. And we took them ashore. There was no violence. There was nothing unpleasant. Um, I believe when they when they got met their bosses afterwards, they told them that um, these armed thugs had turned up, and there, there, no one was armed. In fact, the only one that was armed was one of them had an air rifle when he came out in the dark. But that's my earliest memory: that, that quiet, cold 
night, Christmas Eve, 1966. We should say, I suppose, that Radio Caroline was... Was it the most famous of these pirate radio stations? And it broadcast off the south coast of England from an, an old ship. Was it a light ship? Um, radio Caroline was uh, a fellow called Ronan O'Reilly, who was, who was hanging around in the social scene in London. His, his father, he was an Irishman, and his father had a, a shipyard in Southern Ireland. And it was, it was outfitting a ship to be putting a, a radio mast on a ship to to broadcast into the UK. It was the first one. And he got his dad to slow down, as I remember the story, and he got himself a ship called the Mi Amigo, uh, an old Dutch coaster, and, and he, they were first on the air. And, uh, but it was just, see, when I was a boy, and, and I mean, I'm 69 now, when I was a boy, there was no pop music, uh, unless you listened to Radio Luxembourg, which used to go in and out of the ether, like faded away and came back at night time. Uh, because the signal used to bounce off the ionosphere and, and then land in the UK sort of thing. But the, the BBC only played chamber music and things, and, and I think on a, on a Sunday night at 6 o'clock, it was the only time they played pop music was the, the top 20, uh, and I think Alan Freeman or someone used to, you know, to do it. And, they, and that was the only pop music you would hear on, the, on, yeah. on British radio. And there was no commercial radio either. There's always obviously there was commercial radio in, in America and places, but uh, and there was no 24-hour stations either. So my dad's station was the first 24-hour radio station in Europe. Uh, it was called Radio Essex, and then he changed the name to BBMS, Britain's Better Music Station. Uh, he only had actually uh, quite a, a low-power transmitter. But Caroline and some of the other ships, they had you know quite powerful things, with 50 and 100 kilowatt transmitters. But Caroline was probably the most famous one. In fact. I don't know there's any truth in it, but it was suggested that the Kennedy family had something to do with it because, uh, and it was named after Caroline Kennedy, but I don't know if that's true or not. Tell me a little bit about your father then. Was, uh, was he an eccentric guy? He sounds it. He was being trained up by, my grandfather was a salesman in Smithfield Market, uh, which is the meat market, the big meat market in London. And I think he was very good at what he did. And he had several brothers, my grandfather, and they all worked in that market. And my grandfather was a bit of a loon. And looking back, my dad, I mean, my dad used to say, oh, he's, he's a bit off his chump, but my grandfather was gassed in the First World War, with mustard gas uh, in the trenches. And it, he also, he got the, the military cross, and the citation reads something along the lines of, he was in command of three guns. And I think that means about 20-odd people, uh, you know, for the three gun crews. So these were field guns. And they were all, everybody was killed or wounded, apart from my grandfather. And, and the guns were put out of action. He carried on fighting one gun after the other until he lost, lost all his troops that were, you know, the, the, the gun crew. And then he dressed their wounds and, and retired back to his unit. And he got an amazing, very, very high accolade medal for bravery. And it was his first action. So, so that was, that was the way they were brought up. And it was, and my dad was very Victorian, you know, he was old fashioned and, and just expected sort of thing. He ended up at the end of the Second World War as a, as a major in the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers. In fact, his headquarters was the Tower of London. Mm. And when he declared independence with sit on Sealand, uh, his lawyer said, you'll end up locked up in the Tower for treason. My dad said, well, that's handy because it's my regimental HQ and I've, <laughs> there's a few people there I still know. But he had a, my dad was badly wounded during the war and several times. I mean, he was at Monte Cassino, which was the, the monastery on top of a mountain in southern Italy. 
And as the Allies moved up, they uh, they came up to the, came up to this very fortified position, um, and it's a very famous battle. And the Americans bombed it flat, but they actually gave the Germans somewhere to hide amongst all the rubble. And they, I mean, they could have gone round it, but it was decided by the powers that be that they needed to take this this mountain. And he he had a grenade go off. A German stick grenade went off, and it. He smashed all his jaw, and and um, and he told me that the surgeon said to him after he wired him all back together and everything. And I remember he had a very livid skull down his face. The surgeon said, "You have to get used to the fact that no woman will ever look at you." And my, <laughs> a bit harsh, isn't it? And, but uh, my father actually went on to marry my mother, who was the most beautiful woman, absolutely stunning. My mother. So he proved the surgeon wrong, but what a harsh thing to say to a man who's just been wounded. Uh, yeah, he would have been a relatively young man at the time as well. He was a young man. He, he lied about his age to get in the army. The plan was, if the war hadn't come along, he was going to go to Argentina and uh, and run cattle ranches, which he, he would have loved to have done. I mean, he he's the only person I've ever known that said he enjoyed the war. And it wasn't because of, like, killing people, hurting people. It was the adventure. The man was a total... He just loved an adventure, you know, and and once he had an adventure, he'd, he'd look for something else to do. Mm. I mean, after the war, he imported rubber from what was then Malaya, shiploads of it, and he he made swim things, you know, flippers, and they they'd never been. They were, I think, they were a wartime invention, and you couldn't get them in the UK. No one even knew about them, and he struggled to sell them and everything else. And now, of course, we've all got the garage when we go on holiday. He did some really, really, you know interesting stuff in his life so Sealand and establishing his own country was not his first unusual scheme he, he was a monarchist i mean he he supported the british monarchy and he always said to the day he died if i was called upon again i would step forward and defend queen and country or king and country whoever, <laughs> whoever was around at the time he always said that he never never uh, denied his his britishness or englishness should i say probably but it was just, I think he was upset about the, the laws they brought in, the British government brought in, to close the radio stations down. And then, of course, the British government found that the public wanted, they wanted music, pop music on the radio. And um, the BBC always said they couldn't afford to, to, to have what they call needle time, you know, play records, because they had to pay the performing rights, so many pennies or whatever, every time they played a song. Um, in fact, you'd hear the, the Beatles and that, the it would be the BBC like orchestra that would play their music, and you couldn't get it on the on the radio. So the British government then gave out licenses, and they didn't offer entrepreneurs such as my father and the other guys that had invested so much time and and uh, energy and, and and money in in getting the radio stations on the air. Because in those days, of course, you could. I'm sure. I'm sure now you can go on Amazon and buy all the all the kits for the you know the, and transmitted and everything else. But in those days, that's, everything had to be made. Uh, and they didn't didn't give the, these entrepreneurs any recognition. The government and they gave the radio stations to local businessmen and things. So he was well, he was pissed off, I suppose. <laughs> so and he he just in a conversation with his lawyer when he'd taken the fort over. It it was suggested that uh, he declare independence. His lawyer told him he couldn't do it. He said, "No, you can't do that." And my father said, "Why not?" And he said, "Well, I don't know why not, but you can't. They'll, they'll lock you up in the bloody tower." And so he said, we go away and think about it and tell me why I can't do it. And so he came back. He said, well, I can't think of the lawyer. I said, I can't think of a reason why you can't do it, but you can't do it. Uh, and so that wasn't good enough for my father. So off he went and did it. So what is Sealand exactly? It's some sort of 
military gun emplacement. Yeah, it was. It was the, during the during the Second World War. The German bombers would follow the Thames up to London. Uh, there was obviously there was no GPS in the arsenal. It was back in the day when when they would have used charts and and d- dividers and a compass and a bit of dead reckoning to find out what you know to work out like you do on on usually doing ships and these to to get the aircraft to the to the right spot. But of course the easier way was to just find the mouth of the Thames and follow it until it narrowed down. But they they were also the convoys were coming from America. With you know, very valuable food supplies and, and ammunitions and that we needed to keep the war going, um, so the Germans were also coming at night and they were they were dropping uh, parachute mines, and these were like magnetic or acoustic mines. Unlike if you see in the movies, the ship hits the mine and explodes and all that sort of carry on. It, it these were actually very clever in so much as the, the ship didn't have to hit the mine, but the mine would be set off fairly near a ship, and if the the, the explosion and the and shock waves of the water would bend all the shafts and the rudders and everything on the ships and make them unserviceable. So that so they put a group of navy forts and which is sea land is one or across the mouth of the of the Thames and they put some army ones which are different design things further up. They were like like something out of Star Wars, the army ones, and, and groups of seven with catwalks between them. But um, the, the British government built the forts illegally in international waters. But it was during a time of war, so no one cared. Uh, but when the war was over, they abandoned them. The terra nullius, they, they abandoned them in international waters and walked away. So, I mean, they should actually, have, according to international law, have destroyed the fort, but they didn't. So, mm. so that's why, you know, it's, it's a terrific precedence, if you like, of law, the fact that there was this bit of territory and it was abandoned. What did your mum think of all of this? Because, you know, I, I've seen Sealand and it's, uh, it, it's, in, it's very interesting, but it's, it's not a, it's not a, a glamorous place. It's, it's not a, you know, it no. doesn't have many comforts at all. <laughs> and did, you know, in order to be, I know that there are a number of rules, and maybe we'll talk about those a little bit later on, that you have to abide by or have to, um, you know, there are a number of boxes you need to tick in order to be recognized as a country. And one of those is that you have to have a permanent population. And did your mum think, oh, oh my God, is my crazy husband taking me to live on this, this gun emplacement in the middle of the North Sea? They loved each other to death. They had a very romantic life. But my mother was one of those ones that, I mean, she hated the cold. And in our house in, in Essex, where we where we lived, when she hung the washing out in the winter, she would faint, you know? She was no good with the cold at all. And then all the time she's sitting out there on this porch. And I'm a, just a, I'm a little boy. I'm, well, 14 years old. Not that little, I suppose. Having to go out with a hammer and cold chisel to break the ice in the water tanks to, to boil some ice up to get water, you know, to make a cup of tea. She was tough. Her father was an, an RSM, a regimental sergeant major in the Royal Horse Artillery. And funny enough, both the grandfathers were in the Royal Horse Artillery. He was originally from Ireland, her father, and my grandfather was was a Londoner. My father was born in Ealing. And I know, I know my father's father ended up in Southend, I suppose, because he, when he got gassed, the doctors told him he had to go and live by the sea somewhere, and I suppose he was you know, for the fresh air. So how do you go about... How does somebody go about establishing their own nation, or in this case, a micro-nation? I mean, 
is there a rule book? I mean, does the United Nations provide you with a list of legal steps that need to be taken or fulfilled? Nobody helps you. Nobody's ever going to help you because, I mean, the Montevideo Convention, which was signed by Roosevelt, President Roosevelt and several others, uh, a state must have population, territory and government and the capability to enter into relations with other states. Well, we have a population. We've had as many as 50 on Sealand. We have territory. We have government. Uh, it's a constitutional monarchy. And, of course, we can, we can communicate with other states. And, in fact, we've been visited by the German ambassador at one point during a, a bit of a crisis, which was, you know, recognition. I mean, the, the, in 1978, we had a, uh, an interesting event where some Germans invaded, shall we say, and they took me prisoner and kept me locked up in a room for four days with no food or water. So my father and I and a couple of, of uh, our friends came out in a helicopter, slid down ropes, and recaptured the fort. Uh, there was masts on the top, so you couldn't land a helicopter specifically for that. Uh, but a friend of ours was a James Bond stunt pilot, and he had a helicopter uh, company at Southend Airport. And uh, he, he, he was actually happy to take us out there and do it. He said it was the first time he'd ever heard real gunfire. And, he, and he'd, he'd made all sorts of Bond films. He'd flown, he'd flown inside of warehouses and all sorts of things. Um, but it, it was a, it was a, <laughs> and that was a very amazing event. Um, and people always want to know about that one. But that's uh, 1978, that was. So wait a minute. You were on Sealand. Yeah, or you were in Sealand. You were, you were at, in the nation of Sealand. And a group of German mercenaries turned up and took you prisoner and kept you locked up for four days. I end up getting locked in a steel room. Did they hold you at gunpoint? I mean, were they armed? They were armed, yeah. So I end up getting locked up in a steel room. And at one point they let me out and... Uh, but they made sure they tied my hands together. They'd found some 20-gauge shotgun shells, uh, and they hadn't found a 20-gauge shotgun. I mean, in those days, young lads like me had a shotgun shell collection, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I remember as a kid, actually, playing with my grandfather's live ammunition in the pantry at my grandparents' house. Yeah, different times. <laughs> yeah, different times. My father had a pistol collection. He had about three pistols under, uh, in a wooden box under his desk at, in, in, at home, you know. How did you escape in order to join your father? A Dutch trawler turned up with, a, with reinforcements. So I ended up going to Holland on the fishing boat to Scheveningen Harbour. And I went back to the fisherman's house. He took me to his house and I managed to sort out a flight back to the UK the next day. I went back to England and my dad got back the next day. He'd heard there was something wrong. We didn't really know what had happened to no mobile phones, there was no communication. But anyway, so I, I, um, my dad came back and we phoned up John Crudson, the helicopter pilot, and he suggested he, he was really annoyed at what had happened. He said, I'll take you out there. So we went to Southend Airport at dawn. Uh, we took the doors off the helicopter and we flew out there. And as we, as we came nearer and nearer, I could see this yellow shape on deck. And it was the, uh, the German lawyer, Gernot Putz was meant to be keeping watch. I think he was a bit drunk. And the first thing he saw was the helicopter appear from underneath the platform. Uh, we came up into the wind to keep the noise down. And the, the bizarre thing, looking back, is we never even considered wearing a life jacket. We didn't even think about it. We practiced sliding down ropes because we didn't want to be 
abseiling because we didn't want to be connected to the helicopter. We practiced sliding down ropes outside a, a property we had in the UK. And as we came in, I climbed out. I'm standing on the skid, you know, and we're flying about a meter above the sea. Crazy stuff. I mean, I'm very proud of what what, I, what we did then. And uh, but it was the biggest adrenaline buzz you ever had in your life. And the helicopter pilot was the stunt pilot from the Bond movies. Yeah, yeah. So you know the one where the um, where Roger Moore drives the Lotus out out of the out of the sea. The spy who loved me, and that was in Sardinia. Yeah, yeah was it? Yeah, Caroline Munro wasn't the pretty page three girl. She was flying the helicopter. That was actually him. And she's shooting up the car as it goes down the road. Remember that? I remember it well, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the other one he made was quite an interesting one because they didn't have helicopters during the war. Where Eagles Dare. Richard Burton was a very big film at the time. And John met his wife. She was a stunt woman, Jill. He met her on the set there. He actually, I'll tell you another story about him. He swears blind he saw the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, crazy, huh? You were flying one meter above the water, standing on the skids, waiting, or one of the skids, waiting to slide down a rope onto sea land, onto the platform where Alexander Putz was supposed to be keeping watch. I was the first one down, and the first one down was meant to collapse the scaffold pole mast so that the helicopter could land, take all the ropes off it, and then he could go back to Southend Airport. As his widow told me uh, a year or so ago when I had dinner with her, you know, you realise that day when John took off, all our insurances and everything were null and void. And funny enough, although he was a great friend of ours, we didn't like to tell him we were armed. We just showed him we had some pickaxe handles or something like that. Really? He said, well, I fucking well am. And he pulled his jacket back and he's got a three five seven Magnum under his coat and shoulder holster. <laughs> so, ah, dear. Bless him. What a bunch of cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> so you're armed with a sawn-off shotgun at this point yeah i had to take my best shotgun and saw the barrels of it it hurt me greatly but <laughs> and you fired it yeah as a warning well what actually happened was i was the first one down and the germans were running out of the building just below the helipad where i came came off the rope so i ran to the edge and i jumped across this water tank which i suppose was four, four foot maybe wide uh, and then went down the 10 or 12 foot and landed on the deck with a crash. And uh butt of the shotgun hit the ground and then boom. And they all stuck their hands up in the air. <laughs> all was well that ends well, let us say. So that was you reclaiming Sealand. And then presumably you tied these the German mercenaries up. We locked them up in the, in the magazine, like the wartime magazine, which was below sea level. Hmm. So you're Prince Michael of Sealand. Yeah. And, and your father was also Prince yeah. of Sealand. Why, why not King? Why not King of Sealand? Well, we, we kept it a principality because uh, the prince's word is the law. Is there a, you know, I, I should have looked this up. I should have done my homework. But is there an international organization of micronations? Well, there are several organizations that we've been asked to join. And they all seem to put us, of course, because we're the, the most interesting example, if I say so myself. And I've met some really nice guys, but they but what they've done is not nothing like what we've done. I mean, we went through blood, sweat, and tears with no support and everything else. These other people, they're as as interesting as they, some of them are, they're having independence in their front room or or whatever, you know. So it's they're just like weekend warriors, as far as we're concerned. I wonder, without you know, giving too much away about your personal finances, is it expensive? 
to run your own country? It's very expensive, but now we have our noble title initiative. And with the advent of the um, the internet, um, we've got a vast amount of supporters and people that buy our noble titles. And they're a great bit of fun, and it, and it pays for all that. And you, you've got three children, I understand. Do they also have royal titles? Yeah, yeah, they Prince James, Prince Liam, Princess Charlotte. And they're happy to carry on. They've taken up the, uh, the challenge for years now, and, and uh, they're very much involved. And uh, uh, I give the odd interview now and again, but they, they do everything now. Would you, one last question. Would you recommend to anyone listening to this that they start their own nation, if they feel so inclined? <laughs> no. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it's been it, it, it's not boring, is it? It's not but my my father's quote you know, I, I might die young and or I might die old, but I certainly won't die of boredom. Remarkable Stories is made by Boat Radio. It is written and produced by John Herlig and Mike McDowell. Our stories are edited in the Boat Radio Studios in sunny Majorca. If you like today's show, consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a five star review wherever you listen. For everyone at Remarkable Stories, I am Elizabeth Shrey saying thanks for listening. Ooh. <laughs>